This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I am Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Senior Associate in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in from London. This is the final episode of Season 2 of the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. We will be taking the month of August off for a short break before Season 3 starts again in September with some truly spectacular guests to kick things off. With that said, we want to end Season 2 with some fun reminiscing about the show thus far and with a close friend of the podcast as our special guest. So for today's episode, we are delighted to have with us our good friend, Marcus Viltoner. Marcus is a partner at McKinsey & Company, which needs no introduction, where he focuses on the hydrogen sector. His experience and expertise in the space spans the better part of the last decade, and we are excited to have him with us today to close out what has been an incredible season at Everything About Hydrogen. As always, before we dive in, we'd just like to remind everyone that we'd love to hear from our listeners, and if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys, last episode of season two. This is big, guys. Two years in. How are we all feeling? Everybody has beards now. I keep bringing that up, but I'm still into the idea. Chris, how does it feel to be completing season two of the Everything About Hydrogen podcast? Did you think we would be here? Yeah, I mean, I think people kind of have no idea how random this sort of history of the show is. I mean, I think if I'm not entirely mad, the original one was when I was doing like a, I was going to do a podcast and then I think I sent it to you guys to hear what you thought about it. And someone said, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's broaden it out. Uh, and then we were like, you know, are you two mad enough to join me? And I think you both thought I was completely bloody insane. Still do. I thought, I thought it was a, I thought it was a terrible idea. And, uh, you know, that just goes to show how little foresight and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, ability to see down the road I have. So kudos to you for seeing it, Chris. April 19, right, I think was when we did our first recordings in uh, Goat Radio in DC with the beers still from the, the taps. I just remember thinking that the beer uh, the beer was free and in a recording studio as opposed to me, me and Chris usually at 2 a.m. talking about hydrogen applications while drafting random things while you were at the World Bank. So that was that was the, the big sales point for me, you know. We had like a rotation of beers, of not the beers of bars that we were hitting up, beers and bars, but definitely bars. There were like a couple that were just sort of equidistant that we just kept doing all near Adams Morgan, wasn't it? God, yes, and then, like and then Chris got tired of our company, Patrick, and uh, moved moved back to London. This actually coincides pretty directly. I think in spending more time, he's like, I got to get out of this place. <laughs> But no, uh, it is quite funny. And then, you know, I, th- I think um, the first month we were doing this, we had three episodes released and we had 300 downloads across three episodes. And I think we were delighted because we were like, well, that's more than our parents, our siblings, you know, and uh, and us listening to them two, three times each, <laughs> you know, and a few other pity listens from kind of loose friends. We're like, OK, well, that's cool. Yeah. I, 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 I'm shocked we got more than those, you know, we got those first 300. That was a, that was a, a big bellwether for me. What about you, Patrick? Did you think we'd be here? Did you think that you would be ending season two with a prospective season three of the podcast ahead of you uh, when we first started this? That's a good question. I don't know. I know. I've got, I've, I'm full of good questions, Patrick. I, I'm just, I, I just, I don't, I don't know. You know what? One thing I will tell you is that I did not expect to be doing season two from my my, my apartment for the entire season. That, that's, that's the fair. one thing I certainly didn't expect. That's fair. Um, but 
no, I like, like, I think, I think it's been fun. And, you know, it's kind of weird to think that there's, you know, season three, right? Uh, but it's great. And it's been, it's been a, a lot of fun. It's been a bit of an adventure, obviously. And it's a, a timestamp as well through what we've gone through, you know, from, you know, where it was kind of a little bit early and into a very exciting time and then obviously COVID and stuff. So we've, uh, we've got some record of some pretty, pretty unique features within, uh, you know, both the energy transition and human history in a way, right? It's kind of cool. Andrew, what did you tell uh, what did you tell your uh, your family and uh, and others when uh, you first sort of started on the podcast? You know, what did what did they say when you first told them you were going to be hosting a podcast? Uh, well, I think my father's response was, "Are you sure that's a good idea for you?" Uh, and I think that was probably the right question. You know, showed a healthy amount of skepticism. Um, I think where they really got confused is, uh, you know, they weren't surprised by my own egotism that people would want to hear my voice on a biweekly basis just talking. Uh, but they were wholly unfamiliar with hydrogen as an energy transition uh, pathway, right? So, and that in the two years that we've been doing, two seasons, two years we've been doing this, that has completely changed. You know, there's very few people that, uh, it was often my girlfriend uh, tells people when I first meet them that I, I'm on a podcast, which is not helpful. But then they immediately ask, what is it about? I say hydrogen energy technologies that everybody knows about hydrogen now. I no longer get that dumbfounded look. Right. So that's been a, a huge, huge transition just in uh, in the hydrogen world. And it's, uh, you know, it's prevalence amongst the, the general public. I think it's uh, it's just been an amazingly rapid uh, growth in that sense. So. It's been pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Well, look, the other piece of the story that I don't think anyone probably knows, or some people might know, is, of course, that we all met through SICE Johns Hopkins, which makes our guest today even more amusing. Another SICE alum, Marcus Wiltoner. An incredible amount of nepotism here, I suppose, on this show. <laughs> Marcus is a partner at McKinsey, um, probably best known as, um, sort of, I would say, at least in my humble opinion, um, the McKinsey hydrogen guy or guru. Um, certainly very well known for writing and, and leading a lot of the work around all the hydrogen councils, uh, McKinsey reports, um, you know, very, very knowledgeable man across the space based in Brussels. So again, quite nice to get a, a different perspective on, on the markets as well for many who may be aware hydrogen council is actually based in uh, DC, I believe Patrick's the headquarters, right? For, for the secretariat anyway, um, even though they do all their meetings in France, which, you know, there are worse places to be doing, uh, your annual meetings as a as a group than um, Davos and um, Versailles, you know. So it's hard life, Chris. Yeah. So obviously, guys, part of the joy of having Marcus as an exercise salam here is to kind of chat a bit more generally about the market and kind of get his views and perspectives. Um, you know, before we maybe get him on the line, I mean, Patrick and Andrew, what's your kind of take on? Um, I guess where we kind of are in the market because I know we've you know talked a little bit about over the course of season two, the ups and the downs. But, um, you know, going into the summer, is there anything that surprised you about the way the market's played out this year? Or has it kind of gone the way you thought it might? Oh, yeah, no, it's exactly how I predicted, for sure. No, um, look, it's been it's been a volatile time. It's been it's been it's been interesting. Right. And we're starting to get the level of scrutiny that shows that it's pretty serious now. Right. And, and it's a lot less speculative, I think. Um, we're also at the point where we're starting to see deployments, right? Uh, you know, we had a, a shell announcement there. What was it earlier last from earlier this week, like earlier, maybe middle of last week around kind of their, uh, their announcement of a new project. And then there's been tons of other kind of, uh, proposed, uh, kind of demo plants, commercial plants launched, you know, kind of turn from that kind of speculative kind of maybe not speculative but like the, the kind of examination and potential phase into that actual deployment phase and um yeah we're not there yet right and there's a lot of hurdles to go but um i think this is where the rubber meets the road a little bit and it's going to be an exciting season three andrew what do you think did it go the way that you did did, did the last year you, you planned yeah, just like Patrick, uh, just like Patrick, uh, I predicted everything that's happened this year in the hydrogen world. My stock portfolio is amazing at this point, so I'm just going to uh, take this opportunity to announce that I'm leaving the show and uh, retiring to uh, to Davos. Uh, no, guys, I would I would uh, I would feign the fact that I did not predict the growth uh, and the rapidity of the growth of the hydrogen sector over the last eighteen months. That was was surprising to me 
I think uh, it bodes well for season three. And in fact, I think we've uh, lined up some some pretty cool guests that we uh, we should probably hold off for now. As you say, are we going to tease? Are we going to tease them? A teaser, but I think uh, people should definitely tune back in in September. They don't want to miss out. But I would say uh, this this episode is going to be a little bit unique in terms of format. Is it not, Chris? How are we going to approach this one? This is kind of a bit more of, a, I think, a, a year-end roundup for us, right? And I think that's kind of what's nice. So in some senses, uh, you know, we started, the, we started this intro today talking about how the show started, talking about beers and exiles and around DC. And in some ways, we're kind of finishing like that too. Experts, um, well, an expert i'm not sure if we're still considered experts but an expert three punters and uh and a podcast maybe that's the new title of the season three i like it i think that's british lingo that i don't understand but uh i love it let's do it right well andrew i think you know the line all right let's see if we can get marcus on the line here guys once more (laughs) this episode of everything about hydrogen is brought to you by Bayotech. Beogas, Beotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Beotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Beotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit Bayotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. Okay, so Marcus, thank you uh, so much for making the time. It's a pleasure to see you again, my friend. If you uh, wouldn't mind giving a quick introduction about yourself and maybe a few lines about McKinsey's interest in the hydrogen market uh, to start us off, that'd be fantastic. Sure, Andrew, happy to do that. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm Marcus Wiltoner. I'm a partner now with McKinsey originally Austrian, but I spent a lot of time in Brussels these days. My first contact with hydrogen was really my second project at McKinsey. It was about 10 years ago when we were looking at this topic, and it was still very a niche topic. People didn't know much about, lots of Hindenburg jokes. And uh, this has changed quite a bit uh, in the last couple of years. Hydrogen has been almost my exclusive topic. I do work on, on batteries as well, but uh, hydrogen and batteries have taken up all my time. And uh, I've been working with players along the value chain, mostly in Europe, but a bit in Asia and North America and in the Middle East as well. And uh, it's a really exciting time in the industry and cool to be on the show to talk a bit about that. Uh, I think um, one thing that we thought was interesting to get you on is kind of, you know, we've got Steam, Patrick Malloy and, and Andrew and yourself. So, you know, kind of bounce a few ideas and get some perspectives on things. So maybe start you with a nice, easy one. We kind of went through hygiene mania a little bit earlier in, you know, probably 18 months ago and maybe even 12 months ago. It was still pretty white hot. You had the big share pop and all the SPACs. Um, it seems to have kind of cooled off a little bit. I mean, what's your sort of take on that? I mean, is that sort of a permanent thing? Is that a blip in the road? And kind of, you know, maybe you can talk to what you're seeing around that and what's driving that. Look, I think first hydrogen is, is we think about this more long term, right? So we think this is, it's really a key cornerstone of the energy transition. So this is, is, is this is, if it is a blip, it is a blip, but um, I think long term hydrogen is here to stay. And in fact, I mean, there have been crazy uh, rallies on the on the stock markets. But if you if you look at the number of projects that are out there, we're going to release very soon an, an update on on our view of the state of the industry, and you will see that there's a lot of new projects coming on. We we count no more than 350 uh, large scale projects. That's another more than a hundred more than a, than it was at the beginning of the year. We're looking now at 70 gigawatts of electrolysis announced for 2030, um, and we'll think that grows further. And uh, um, a lot of governments are getting more and more tough on, on climate, you know, with, you know, the UK passing the really ambitious climate targets for 2035, the EU's getting more stringent, China being serious about net zero, talking about peak carbon in some of the industries, and obviously with the new administration in the US. So I think um, there will always be little ups and downs, but um, we actually don't see a slowing down. I, I, I still see that it's growing quite rapidly and that it's developing uh, quite quickly. So, so Marcus, given given ten years working in the space, which makes you a veteran, you know, when 
or old. <laughs> the beard's not white, so you can't be that old. So. I, I, I would never, I would never call you old. True, but but you know, exactly. thinking back to that that last two years versus the ten, or the eight years prior to it, you know, how like I think it's hard for folks who've come to the space recently to truly understand how rapidly this has evolved, and maybe how rapidly did it evolve given given your experience of of the transition over those those periods of time and maybe what were the big changes you saw that occurred was it like a hockey curve just sort of went like this flat line and then bang or was there like a few blips along the way yeah i think there was more more a few blips along the way right there is ups and downs in in any technology development but i think a few things that have changed if i look back on the discussion 10 years ago we were more worried around how good is the technology of a fuel cell? Um, how safe is it? Uh, about these kind of things. And now a lot of the technology has evolved quite a bit. And it's often not so apparent because technological development doesn't take center stage, right? What, what catches headlines is big projects and big investments. But it's actually, there's a lot of science that has been going on and has improved quite a bit. Um, so I think that's different. But the other thing which is different and which is really the big difference to back then is that now renewables are cheap, right? 10 years ago, renewables were expensive and uh, you had to subsidize renewables everywhere. And now we're starting to see a place renewables breaking even in many, many places. And we can see that renewables will be abundant. And so that has fundamentally changed the economics. Um, that fundamentally changes the viability of the whole business case. And it makes uh, investments into this attractive uh, where it was a completely regulatory driven 10 years ago we are now seeing a route towards where regulation will play less of a role. And that, that's attractive to investors. And I think that that's what has really changed and was really the underlying difference between back then and now. Yeah, I mean, I, we talk about this, right? We talked about this in the future. How much of this is also just like the drive towards net zero, right? Because if there, it doesn't, in some sense, it doesn't seem to matter to me when solar and wind is necessarily cheap. It's like, do people want to change, right? Like, I, I, I'm always amazed by how hard it is to convince people, even when it is cheaper to switch, because they're comfortable with something. Right. So like, you know, is it actually the case that, you know, it's the fact that it's price rather than regulation or is it kind of that holy trinity of things that have come together? Right. There's policy finance desperately searching for a new asset class and not enough yield and the technology's kind of good enough now that it's, you know, commercially makes sense. You know. No, absolutely, Chris. I mean, you put it very nicely. It's these three things that play together. Um, one, if, if you're missing one of the three, it doesn't work. Right. Um, but I think that the whole drive to sustainability is, I mean, it is driven by net zero policy and, and targets, but it's also not coming only from the regulator, right? It's customers asking for products that are greener. It's businesses setting themselves targets to, to decarbonize their value chain, to look into the scope two and scope three emissions. So yeah, that definitely plays a role. Net zero is important because it's this kind of long-term vision that makes it clear that we really need hydrogen and then it just becomes a question of just becomes a question of timing and uh and as long as you didn't have that people were always like well do we really need it it's pretty expensive like why should i bother i mean if you think about pure economics there are places where going green is still very expensive like flying carbon neutral right yet we see that there are people that are willing to pay and businesses that are willing to pay for offsets which is not a cheap way of going uh, going net zero, but it is a way of going net zero. And so there's there's a business there. And so uh, as the sole American on the call, Marcus, and as the policy-focused one on the call in particular, I'm going to concentrate on one of those pillars. Uh, what, from your standpoint, where you sit, like having a sort of 30,000-foot view as well as a very detailed view of this market globally, right? What impact do you see the U.S. administration, the new <laughs> U.S. administration, having on the on the broader hydrogen market? You know, I think it's probably fair to say the previous administration may have had a stalling effect. <laughs> but do you see how do you see the new administration changing uh, changing things for the broader market, both both nationally in the United States, but also globally? No, I think first of all, I mean, going back into joining the rejoining the Paris Accord obviously sends a strong signal, right? And sent a strong signal that this thing is not dead, quite the opposite. And uh, and then announcing a target for 2030, which is really important, right? Because long-term goals are, yes, they're nice, but investors don't act on long-term 
they, they act on things that are five, 10 years down the road. So the long-term goal and then setting a 2030 target is, is a quite strong signal for the, for the industry. Now we'll need to see how that translates into actual policy. Uh, we'll need to see how that translates into actual deployment in the next few years. If you think about it fundamentally, the US and, and North America in the broader sense is a kind of perfect place for hydrogen, right? You have plentiful renewable potential. You have, if you look at blue hydrogen, you have cheap natural gas, you have the potential to sequestrate CO2, you have an extensive gas infrastructure. You need a lot of energy for the industry. You have long distance transport, you have lots of heavy duty trucks, you have lots of airplanes, a heavy trains. So in a way, the US is kind of has all the all the good things in, in a, for, for a hydrogen investor or for a hydrogen business. But it is also a, it's always a story of uneven growth, right? There is a, there's the federal level, which has now taken a different turn, but you look at the state level and the state level is, some states are really leading on climate, right? They, we would consider them to be, even under, under the previous administration, to be um, the most progressive ones around the world, whereas others will certainly lag behind. So it's a it's an uneven story of growth, but the US is a perfect place for, for hydrogen if it if it chooses to go that way. Yeah, I guess you did touch on one thing and I don't want to distract too dramatically uh, and go into a different different line of conversation. But look, here's something that I think we talk about a lot and I think is a is a big picture question and I, I'm not sure how you want to tackle it, but let's put it out there in the big picture question and maybe even get Patrick and, and Chris to, to give their views on it as well. From someone who sits in Europe, the role of blue hydrogen in the transition is going to be a relatively, what would you call that, guys? A live wire topic in Europe? Yeah, contentious, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe not so contentious in the U.S., but I'm not sure that it's not so contentious in the U.S. because a lot of people in the U.S. don't really follow the hydrogen market as closely as perhaps the, the European uh, general public, right? So it hasn't come up as such a hot topic politically in the United States. But I guess the question that I'm getting at then, Marcus, for you and, and Patrick and Chris as well, in the United States versus Europe or other regions as well, I mean, you know, Asia is not to be ignored here, nor Australia. What is the role for, for blue hydrogen in that transition? And I, I feel free to break that down as you guys want to, but, you know, Marcus, you mentioned it in the United States, so I guess maybe that's the starting point, right? Where do you see that fitting in the transition in a place like the United States and North America, but then also in, a, in the broader picture. Easy question for him, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just trying to, trying to ease you in on this one, Marcus. Maybe a few thoughts. Um, and you are right, it's a super controversial topic, right? It's one that is hotly debated um, within companies, within governments, in the press. Uh, there's, no, there's no doubt about it. This is one of the critical ones. And I guess, one one way of, of of thinking about it, or a few aspects to think about, is um, how quickly do we want to transition? I think that is a key question because the, the 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 faster we want to go, the quicker we need to build. We need to find new sources of energy which are which are not carbon intense, right? So one one thing that we need to do is we need to decarbonize our power grids. Power generation around the world is still very uh, dirty. There's lots of coal. There's lots of gas um, that. You know, you want to replace with with renewables, and now a lot of countries are lagging behind on their plans to build out renewables fast enough. Now, if we add hydrogen to that, that adds additional green hydrogen to that, that adds additional power requirements. Right? We need more power generation, and so can we can we build? Is that really additional renewables that we build, or are we taking away from transitioning the power sector? And that's a critical question, and it it actually depends on where you are. In some places where the speed of build-out is limited because you cannot get more renewables through or because geographically you just don't have enough renewables. Pushing green hydrogen a lot would take away from the power sector transition and that would not make that much sense, right? You do want to do both, but you want to make sure that there is additional renewable energy added to the mix. And then blue hydrogen is a way that obviously can supplement this at a very large scale, right? So you could... You could have blue hydrogen come in and it's clearly not competing with the decarbonization of the power sector. So it can become this additional decarbonization uh, route. So that's that's one consideration and it's by far not the only one, right? Another one is how much energy do you actually have available? Like if you are Japan or Korea, uh, you are anyway shipping in all your, um, all your gas. So 
um, shipping in hydrogen is another is another route, and you can do that with with blue hydrogen and you know supplement your your green hydrogen, or you could ship in green hydrogen. But then again, you need to find places that can really produce lots of green hydrogen at a scale that maybe it's not yet uh, technically feasible. So that's another dimension. And there's many, many more. Uh, I was going to say, because kind of on that one, Marcus, I mean, yeah, in some senses, when you kind of almost opened it up, you know, it's this sort of slightly autarkic piece, right? You know, I think if you're looking at one country in isolation, there's a completely different question to if you're looking at the global system, right? A lot of places just can't do blue hydrogen, right? I mean, let's start with that basic. Not every country in the world can do it. Um, and even so that already limits your options. And then there's a question, I guess, around what uh, also is kind of the responsibility of countries like pick the UK, I know better, but Norway would be another good one to pioneer technologies that maybe you don't need to use in those markets, but other markets will definitely need to use them. But those other markets are less capable of developing those technologies in-house. I mean, I think that's the thing I kind of have struggled the most with this in my head is it's like, we know we're going to need carbon capture. Take aside specifically for hydrogen, we know we're going to need carbon capture. So if we know we're going to need carbon capture globally, the question then becomes, how do you commercialize carbon capture? Well, you probably need a market where the only risk people are taking is technology risk. It's not, you know, it's not that the government's going to have the president assassinated by a Colombian hit squad or that, you know, you're going to have some other issues with the currency becoming untradeable or whatever, whatever. So that means it has to be a developed market. And then there has to be a commercial incentive to do it. And they have to have the geology. So then at that point, you're kind of like, well, it doesn't matter whether the UK needs blue hydrogen or not. Maybe because you need somewhere to commercialize carbon capture and that just happens to be a good place to do it. And you're going to need it elsewhere in the world. So you commercialize it in the UK, create the jobs, and then you export technology that the world needs for net zero. I mean, that's probably about the only argument I found in my head that I can kind of square. I think it's harder outside of that because just because one country can't produce a lot of renewables doesn't mean they can't import from somewhere that does by importing green ammonia or green methanol. So I guess that's how I've looked at it. I feel, feel like there's a huge technology risk or ch- not risk might be, be the right word, but challenges here. But there's also some, and Marcus, you flagged this, you know, exactly right, right? Our renewables pricing, I think the, the cheapest price now we've seen out of um, Saudi Arabia is $10.40 megawatt hour. You know, that's not going to be seen everywhere, but it's it's very, very cheap, right? In the US, the Henry Hub today is a $360 or maybe $370 MMBTU. In Europe, it's at least doubling that price in most places. In Australia, it's about double that price as well. So you end up talking about what's going into this and the price you're going to pay. So, you know, relative market advantage in different places. But also, you know, what we've got about maybe three and a half gigawatts of production capacity of electrolyzers in the world today and taking account of every technology type. I'd, I'd also flag how much installed blue uh, production capacity do we have today? And precisely to your point, Chris, how many commercially scaled carbon capture and storage resources plus the actual caverns and storage facilities for those resources are actually available today. So we have just a scaling issue here as well as local market conditions that then drive that. And who exports or who imports is very, very, very much an open question in a lot of ways because you know if, if you can produce that uh, cheap dollar kilogram and it's cheap enough exporting it to a competitive market where you may have blue hydrogen in, in, in as the, the locally produced source could be displaced. And therefore, even in the places where you, you, you have that low natural gas price, you're not actually competing against that natural gas price anymore. You're competing against that $10 megawatt hour or just below it. And um, there's a lot of dynamics that we're going to see come to pass, I think, in the next, next number of years that are going to change how we view these energy markets and how some of our assumptions around who will produce what they will produce and what the actual markets that they supply will look like. I think one piece that we see in the US, to to go back to to Andrew's question, the US is going to be around kind of a molecular prioritization around who can actually afford to to buy that green molecule first and who prioritizes it. You know, is it data centers? Is Google or Microsoft or Amazon going to pay a premium to say that they are 24 hours, seven day a week green? And I think they might. Is the aviation sector going to go with a bio or synthetic fuel or is it going to do the the conversions that the folks at Zero Avia talk about or, or universal hydrogen or, or, or high point, you know, and then, you know, go back to 
things like trucking go back to the, the commodity markets, steel and chemicals, right? All of these sectors have different kind of expectations, both in terms of volume of supply, but also price points that they are going to be willing to bear. So we're in for very, very large amount of interesting disruptions to a whole heap of potentially dependent sectors that's going to change all of this, which is all to say it's a wonderful mess. And Marcus, I look forward to reading the next paper McKinsey produce on it. I gotta put Andrew on the spot here a little bit though. I mean, because the other thing is we seem to be just talking about blue in the context of big projects, right? But actually I think one of the things that's kind of interesting, you know, to my mind a little bit is if you were to look at where a lot of the really quick small hydrogen projects have been, they were like a lot of the small SMR stuff. I mean, companies like High Gear, for example, have done a lot of these kind of projects and actually, you know, increasingly people like Biotech are too, because it's so easy to just drop a modular container in pick up off the grid and suddenly you've got fuel cell grade hydrogen that you can run off right and like i do kind of also wonder whether that you know be interesting to get your kind of take andrew on as a company that does that kind of smaller piece what you guys think about blue because blue also could be from biogas right or you, i guess you call that net negative some people right so um, well, we yeah. would we would make the we would make the case that the biogas uh, falls into the greener than green uh, category when we go net negative but We'll come back to that. Maybe that's a little bit of a hot topic as well. But we think we're right about that, right? And Steve Jones will certainly come on here and give you <laughs> give you the rundown on that. But look, for the modular blue hydrogen play, right? I mean, what makes Biotech slightly, maybe not unique, but uh, again, we would make the case that we're unique. But one of the things that we're talking about here is that like a lot of carbon capture technologies are still in a pilot or R&D phase and they're, but they're, and I say that meaning that they are looking to build that into centralized large scale production hubs. So they're still in demonstration technologies, right? So what we found is that for a company like us that has units that are modular distributed and sort of small scale that these pilot project technologies or these demonstration technologies that these carbon capture companies have built uh, and where they are successful, they fit very nicely onto our uh, small, you know, dispatchable modular units, right? So it's actually that we are able to do that kind of uh, carbon capture and blue production early on and probably faster than, than most places can do it because the pilot tech and the demonstration tech actually fits our production scale, right? So. For us, it makes quite a lot of sense. And we're based in a place like New Mexico, which has a lot, a lot of uh, potential for deployment in those sorts of in natural gas fields, even in flaring situations, you know, where they're flaring, we can clean that up for them. So for us, it makes a lot of sense. And we see a lot of potential in that market, particularly in the United States. Now, I obviously to what you guys, you know, this has been a long conversation. And Marcus, I say you, you did a very admirable job addressing a very big uh, problematic question in a, in a in a short period of time, and I think. Uh, but to your point, right? I mean, as as with most of clean or renewable energy technologies, right? You're gonna it's gonna depend on what your market is. For the United States, it makes sense in some states. It does not make sense in other states, and so that's I think uh, I think that's the challenge, right? And obviously, part of the reason it's a hot topic or a live wire, so to speak, in in a in a region like Europe as well. But I think. I don't know, Chris, if that answered your question, but that's how we look at, you know, as a company, that's how we look at the blue hydrogen market, at least in the United States, right? Yeah, well, maybe if we flip it the other way around, I mean, you know, it's clearly not just blue hydrogen's controversial. I mean, the Australians put a ban on the, uh, you know, they rejected the the um, intercontinental energy, Asian renewable energy hub sort of, you know, having seemed like that was all being approved. There was that, was it court ruling or... It was an environmental uh, regulatory kind of yeah survey. delay to it. So I mean, you know, Marcus' question I kind of would put to you because you kind of have that hydrogen council hat and you're kind of getting that kind of thirty thousand foot view. Is you know we're seeing all these enormous projects being announced. Kazakhstan was the latest one, but there's obviously been Oman, Saudi Arabia. People are talking about North America, uh, North Africa. You know, Australia has been unbelievably white hot for these kinds of projects. I mean, what is I guess. You know, what's your sort of take on these projects? How should we be looking at them? I mean, are they even vaguely realistic when, as Patrick says, you've got, you know, three gigawatt of global electrolyzer capacity and then one project is 20 gigawatts? Um, you know, are they aspirational? Are they positive for the market? Or are they actually a distraction? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, they're, they're surely aspirational, some of the sizes that we that we are hearing about. But 
you know we need we need aspiration right i think if you if you look at the amount of energy that we need to produce and the amount of hydrogen that we will need we will need these mega projects certainly in places like europe and coming back to japan and korea we will be short renewables right i mean today we import what europe imports like 60% of its energy and most of that is is fossil based and uh, if we if we want to uh, go anywhere near the objectives that we have set ourselves we need to build out renewables in the countries but we need to also um, create ways of importing renewable energy or clean energy from from other places and so that sheer magnitude just requires these these mega projects which leads us nicely to the next big question is how do we get all that hydrogen to the places that in, where we need it right which is yes ammonia is a great way of shipping hydrogen liquid hydrogen may become a great uh, carrier organic carriers may play an interesting role but also pipelines will be will be quite important right i mean we do pipe gas around long distances nowadays and uh, why would we not do that same uh, with with hydrogen that's that's one of the cheapest ways of um, of um, transporting it around but infrastructure is a is a fantastic and and very interesting question we have we're spending so much time on talking about what does an electrolyzer cost and etc but we haven't spent as much time thinking about how does the infrastructure look to support support all of that and uh and I think with these mega projects, there will be announcements that will become reality. There will be announcements that will not. There will be setbacks. There will be challenges. And uh, these mega projects, as, as any other mega projects, will require a lot of good people and uh, a lot of capital efficiency in how you work and deploy. Um, uh, there will be uh, we will be thinking differently. I think about a lot of the technologies. I think a lot of people look at the way an ammonia plant has been built and say, "Well, that's how we built it for 100 years." But actually, we may not build it like that when we look into the future. So I'm, I think it's also a space where we will see, as a lot of capital flows in, we will see a lot of innovation and, and change in how these projects are built, designed, conceptualized, and delivered. I mean, Patrick, would you add to that uh, what Marcus was just saying? I mean, it's, uh, I think it's, again, just an incredibly complicated question and getting, <laughs> getting hydrogen from place to place, depending on what your methodology is, what your medium for transport is. That's a, that's a lot to dissect, right? But I don't know. What do you where where are you seeing the biggest challenges in that uh, in that in that puzzle? I, I think I think I'd agree with with Marcus both on the need for the aspirational shocking, project. Shocking, shocking. I know a revelation. <laughs> yeah, Marcus. Marcus has said so such a an unbelievably controversial comment. Yeah. No, but but but. You know, look, in, in any of the surveys and any of the reports and anything that you've seen over the last you know, few years, for sure, the, the required scaling is, is so large, so rapid that we simply don't have a choice but to have these aspirational kind of large scale projects. And also to actually scale the sector to be able to uh, actually develop in the way that we need it to. We, we just need to start building the pipeline to actually allow the investments to occur to actually build the facilities to produce. To the transportation storage question, yes, there, look, it is, it is a huge, huge question that has not been dealt with sufficiently. Um, and I think there's early, early work and in some markets, better work done. I think one of the, the pieces that I, I always try to flag when we're talking to folks about this is it's one thing to produce a kilogram at a target price. It's then an entirely different thing to actually get it to the end user. And you can see, you know, if you go to the pump today in California, you can see a $12, $14 kilogram. Half of that's probably because it's being transported in canisters via, via trucks on the road. It's not liquefied. It's not, you know, an ammonia kind of uh, movement, right? So there's there's cost in liquefaction. There's cost in compression. There's also a question of volumes that you're moving. And when it gets down to a large, large market, Marcus is absolutely right. Pipelines are the are the cheapest, easiest way to to move molecules. Now the other aspect of this is when we, you know, take the UK. I'm going to run into Chris's territory for a minute here. If you if you think of where the UK's wind banks are located. It's off the northwest or northeast coast, essentially, right? Uh, it's off Scotland, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put a few pounds down on the table, Chris, and say that the grid infrastructure in, in northern and eastern Scotland isn't the best in the world, and there's not an awful lot of high voltage capacity available lines. 
So if we start talking about pipeline, trunk pipeline conversion, we're actually going to move huge volumes of energy from these or isolated and, and high quality renewable energy sources to urban centers or to industrial centers quickly. And, you know, look, if you're going to move it by a, by a ocean liner and, or you're going to try and move across like large distances, shipping is going to be critical here too. And, and there's a lot of movement that has to occur. And, you know, look, there's some interesting opportunities around cost reductions on, on you know, whether we use nitrogen as the, uh, the molecule for the carrier or whether we're using ammonia as the end fuel or the end use point. Um, so there's questions around dehydrogenation and circulatory use of molecules for transport. The folks uh, uh, doing the liquefied uh, or the liquid organic carriers would, would certainly have interest in that. But there's also just cost points about the mode of transport and how many times you want to uh, transform an energy source. So there's a lot in this, both in terms of mode, but also in terms of molecule and state. And um, depending on what your use case is, and depending on how far you need to go and where you need to travel through, there's going to be expectations of on cost and also continuity of supply. Because, you know, put it simply, uh, an ammonia facility or a steel facility wants to operate 24 hours, seven days a week, essentially. They do not want to shut down. It's one of the huge cost points ramping their, their facility back up. Whereas if you're supplying a fuel station, you get a different kind of use, uh, use profile and supply shape uh, is actually different. So, so we get a lot of dynamics here to think about, but it is the crucial piece, right? And as we move volumes from, you know, what is it, 110, 120 million metric tons a year, we're now talking about six, eight, 10 times that market. What we do and how we move those volumes is is one of the crucial pieces that that we really haven't gotten into sufficiently. So maybe shifting a little bit, and I'm going to put this to Marcus and a bit to Andrew. You know, uh, there's obviously all this macro level interest. I mean, you know, you're talking about infrastructure markets. Is that maybe an area that kind of the investment and policymaker community is kind of ignored? And is that somewhere that you know, given that you're in Brussels and you're looking at kind of the horizon funding and all the other funding coming out of Europe? maybe there should be kind of more focus towards it's like how do you actually get people to think about well you've already spent trillions of euros or trillions of dollars on these pipelines these oil storage terminals this you know there's a coal-fired power station i just read about in germany that's four years old and Wadenfall are closing it down how, is, is that sort of something that you think maybe has been neglected and if so how are you thinking about it or how are people you're speaking to thinking about trying to get people to think about those they're not stranded today but could be stranded infrastructure assets in the context of of all of this yeah i think that's that's a super fascinating one and in fact because if you think about it it's bigger than just hydrogen right it's it's i would say that the the exam question is how do we build an infrastructure for the energy transition how do we take what we have today what is in place today how do we understand what we need in the future and how do we build systems that get the energy that we need in the future from production to consumption in the most efficient way? And we know that the system is shifting in all directions, right? It's becoming more decentral. It's shifting to hydrogen. Um, it has all these, all these effects. And because we are introducing electrolyzers, we are creating a coupling between systems that were coupled only through the gas turbine. And so sometimes people say, but what is the better way of, you know, getting the... Uh, the energy from A to B, is it, is it now the cable or is it, is it the hydrogen molecule? And the answer is that you can look at this on a cable by cable comparison, but if you look at it as a system um, or as two systems or as even more systems that are interconnected and that are working with each other, it becomes a completely, it com becomes apparent that it's not either or, but that there is an optimum of building a kind of green gas or hydrogen uh, based energy infrastructure and an electricity based infrastructure. And I think that understanding and, and that even the tools to analyze properly, the, the projections, I think that's really at an early stage. It's also a place that is difficult for investors to invest in because a lot of this is regulated, regulated business model, regulated uh, asset bases. So it's not a super transparent, easy to understand market that you, know, you can go and, and put a lot of money into. But I think that's an area that is really interesting and that we are looking into quite extensively these days. This is, as you flag, I think, I think rightly, a little bit earlier in its, in its phase. But are you starting to see an uptick in the people who are actually starting to realize that this is a like one of the core questions? Are you, are you feeling that we're kind of maybe getting to the point where people might be kind of cottoning on to the, the fact that this transition, both, as you, as you said earlier, is live? but also that there are some pretty foundational pieces. 
or is it, are we still seeing huge gulfs or gaps in information? I think there's still quite a lot, um, quite a long way to go. But I think it's always, you kind of focus the attention on kind of, you know, the frontier and then you solve that problem and then you see the next big issue, right? So the, the, I think the, the big issue that we solved around hydrogen or that we think we have visibility on is production costs. Now we know how to get to $2 or if you believe $1.5 or $1 by 2030, right? So depending on how ambitious you are. Okay, we solved that. Next problem, how do we get that actually into, into, the, into the right place at the right time? How do we build out the infrastructure to, to support that? So I think there is still a lot of, this is a long way to, to solving it. And because technology, is, it's, this is so dynamic and technology is evolving, I like Andrew talking about these, you know, this is a solution that makes sense in certain regions. Well, how do you integrate that into the overall picture? And I think that's sometimes we are in, in all of those debates, people are trying to predict the future and they're, they're getting a bit too deterministic of saying A is bigger than B and therefore B has no role to play, right? Whereas often the answer is, well, it's not actually that easy. <laughs> it depends on where you are. Both have a role to play. Those roles may be different, um, but... The, the, the systemic answer is much more complicated than a simple A versus B answer. And Marcus, I just want to ask a question a little bit on that one. Is um, Everyone always sort of comes up with the exam question of almost, as you say, like all the exam answers, should we say, of, you know, how do we encourage the transition? And the sort of exam answer first line is, well, we need to get the cost of hydrogen down, right? I, I, I just push you, is that, do we actually think that the single biggest problem is just, is really price? And I ask that because the, the conversation I'm always having with people is I'm sort of saying, you know, most most end users don't know what hydrogen is or how they would use it. So the price is almost irrelevant to them. And if I think about sort of energy history, um, you very rarely transition in the energy, energy transitions are very rarely driven by price. You know, the car is not cheaper nor more reliable or safer than a horse. Electricity was far less efficient, far less safe and far, you know, it makes as much worse product than gaslighting when it first replaced it. But it was considered a better product because it didn't have the smell, the light was more consistent, blah, blah, blah. Is the kind of hydrogen industry in your view maybe making a bit of a mistake, you know, or do you think, you know, actually... That's where they should be focusing on. Because my thesis has always been, I think they are focusing on the wrong thing. I'd be interested to get your thoughts, especially given the work you do with the council on why that is so much of the attention on price. Very quickly though, Chris, what's the uh, what's the TCO analysis on the cost of a, a horse versus the automobile? <laughs> Depends how good the horse is. Um, <laughs> but, um, or the automobiles. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, sorry, well, I, sorry, Marcus. I just had, I couldn't let him just compare horses and automobiles and get away with it. Sorry about that. <laughs> There's a great book called um, The Age of Edison, and they talk about um, the first, the efficiency of the first lighting system in New York. Because efficiency is what everyone talks about in hydrogen, obsessively, especially when they talk about batteries, right? The electrical efficiency of the first power grid in New York was 2%, right? And that was when you got the coal to the fucking power plant, part of my language. Um, but, you know, you had to get it there. So by the time you got the damn thing there, you were negative. Right. So, you know, it didn't stop people using it and plenty of people died using it. And it certainly wasn't cheap, by the way. So it clearly wasn't any of the things that, you know, when you talk about hydrogen today, what's everyone say? It's price, safety, reliability. History of the energy transition says those three things are completely and utterly irrelevant. People do not care about those three things at the start of an energy transition. They care about them once they've already matured and they've scaled, but they don't care about them at the beginning. So, you know, redirectly re to you, Marcus, why should we care about those three things now? Why are we talking about those three things now? I like it as a provocative way of thinking about it, but I would say, Chris, we, we would probably not have invested into electrical grids or into cars if we wouldn't have had visibility that we could get there, right? And I think that's a little bit how we should think about the energy transition. If, if a solution has a viable long-term path to be efficient, effective, etc and then then it, it is worth that initial investment to get over that that deployment and then i think you are right short term focusing on the, only on cost is the absolutely wrong wrong place we should we should look at where does it play to its advantages what are the setups and situations where this can really create value right and so say for example you you're thinking about okay where does hydrogen really create value today is for example in replacing diesel and trucks because not only are you offsetting CO2, but you're replacing local emissions, you're reducing noise, um, you're creating a, a nice experience for a driver. So you have all these additional benefits on top of 
just removing the CO2. Where else could we use this? We could use this in airplanes where people don't care about price and might be willing to pay extra for having the um, ability to say, my flight did not uh, contribute to uh, climate change. Or we could, um, um, we could heat a whiskey distillery to create a green whiskey so people feel better about it. And I mean, it's this, you know, sounds like a joke, but it's, it's, it's finding those, finding those places where um, you're creating value for a customer, for an industry, right? Tesla didn't start out selling affordable compact cars, right? They didn't target the golf segment. They targeted a millionaire segment on the West Coast that wanted to have a race car that was green. And uh, I think that was a really smart move. Um, and I think that's how how businesses and industries should think about where where is the value and go after those segments. They will create, they will create, uh, initiate the change, and then longer term we can go and replace the golf. Well, and, and tying all of those together, if I'm not mistaken, I recently read that uh, J.P. Morgan was one of the first people to have uh, uh, you know electricity installed in his house by the Edison Company in New York, Chris, and it promptly burned down his office twice. So uh, you know. <laughs> It targeted a certain segment, didn't work that well, highly inefficient, and apparently incredibly dangerous as well, right? So, but I think it worked out for him, though, right? He did okay in the end. That's right. Yep, that's right. J.P. Morgan, famously unsuccessful banker, probably due to this. But uh, no, but to, to Marcus's point, right? I mean, there's visibility up to the other side, right? And I think that's uh, that's where that investment comes from. I think that's a, it's a very good way of putting it. With all of this, maybe in, you know, good skin, Patrick's UN hat, and I know Andrew, the biotech are also doing a lot of, trying, of thinking about this topic at the moment. How relevant is COP26 in all of this right now? Because I feel like that's been a theme for the last 12 months is kind of, you know, everyone's kind of saying, oh, COP26, we're going to make this announcement, do this, do this, you know. There is, you could make the argument that COVID's kind of made that more necessary than before, but Marcus, maybe to you first, and then I want to do Andrew and Patrick. Are we expecting too much to think anything particularly interesting will change in the hydrogen sector as a result of COP26? Or, you know, uh, is, is am I unfair to be cynical about it? <laughs> now you're asking me to be the oracle <laughs> of hydrogen. Of course, that's uh, why you're on the show, right? So that's, you haven't even seen the headline for the podcast yet. That is going to be the title on the thing. Actually, I think we gave that to Bjorn Simonson, so we might have to give you a new one. I think in the first episode we did that, but the sensei <laughs> of hydrogen. Uh, I think it's really hard to tell what's going to happen. And maybe actually um, you guys are uh, even better in predicting how important COP26 will be. Um, obviously, the the UK is, uh, you are, has an opportunity here to present its hydrogen strategy. I think we will we'll all look at um, how ambitious it is. Um, we know it has an already incre incredibly ambitious decarbonization goal. So it will be really interesting to see how it chooses to make hydrogen part of that. And I think on a wider scale, if I think where global cooperation can help with with hydrogen, I think there is there's maybe two two aspects. And um, one goes back a bit um, to your history, Chris, is is uh, thinking about you know what does it do for uh, the developing world? Because we talk so much about hydrogen in the developed world, um, but there it has an actually great potential for the developing world where a lot of the best renewables are placed uh, in countries that actually don't use them and don't even have a efficient use for them because they don't really have grids. Uh, they don't attract the kind of foreign direct investment. So for them, hydrogen is a great way of capitalizing on those either for attracting industry or also for creating exports. Um, it's a place where usually you don't compete with uh, super high efficient electric networks where you could charge your car, uh, but with places that have, you know, a need for bigger reliability um, that have a lack of infrastructure. And I think there's a, that's an area where we haven't even looked properly on how to, how to address it and how to, how to get hydrogen into, into those countries. And I think the second thing is that to fight climate change, we don't really care where we save the CO2 molecule, right? We don't actually need to replace it in, in the developed world or in, in any particular place. And so with the vast differences in the, of hydrogen production costs and the trickiness around infrastructure that we discussed, you know, if we could think about a way of, of tapping into those places where it's most efficient and effective to make hydrogen and displace um, other sources of energy and then create a mechanism to, to translate that value or you know, trade that value somehow, 
I think that could create create a lot of value and it would lift a lot of the infrastructure constraints and the energy transition that we have today. Now that's a <laughs> that's a little far off, but uh, I think that is a fascinating topic to think about. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Andrew, what's, are you guys, are you guys doing anything on that for the Biotech side? Are you guys going to be at COP? I'm going to leave that one squarely, squarely in Patrick's uh, lap. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I think uh, from the Biotech side, you know, speaking from us, from us as a company, probably the our UK office is going to have a, a, a better line of sight on that. And I mean, where we sit, you know, we see a lot of. We see a lot of promise in what we're in the messaging we're getting from Envoy Carry. Uh, you know, it's pretty. Oops. Prior to Envoy Carry, I don't think the U.S. was particularly well known for going around the world and trumpeting the uh, the advantages and uh, opportunities of hydrogen. Doesn't mean that they didn't know it, but it wasn't our part of our messaging uh, on the international stage. And so we've seen a lot of promise in uh, in what uh, Secretary and now. Former Secretary, now Envoy Kerry, has been has been saying on the on the administration's behalf. Same same is true of of course Gina McCarthy uh, at uh, at the White House, and then of course uh, Secretary Granholm has been uh, and the DOE have come out with their Earthshot project, which we discussed in a, in a little more detail in the last episode. But um, I did say I was going to leave that with Patrick and give Patrick a chance to weigh in, and then I uh, just love the sound of my own voice, so. Uh, Patrick, did you have any thoughts? We're all in ranty mood today, I guess. Uh, yeah, we're all yeah. well, but um, Marcus has Marcus has so many uh, so many interesting things to say. It gets us all amped up around here. There you go. Um, let's think about. Uh, I think COP twenty six, given some of the ambitious changes we've seen in the last year or so, um, whether it be China actually setting a target for for decarbonizing, whether it be the US now really taking an aggressive stance and moving back into Paris. Um, and also, you know, some of the, the, the efforts in Europe, whether it be the, the carbon um, border adjustment announcements or the prospect of that. And also all the things we just talked about around huge green hydrogen production, um, the mechanism for decarbonizing, you know, huge amounts of industry. I think COP's important. And I think it's important as a, as a statement of intent and yes, it's very, very ambitious. Uh, you know, look, obviously, we're we're developing uh, a, a, and working with a, a whole host of partners around uh, the, the the green hydrogen catapult effort. But there's a, so much going on, whether it be the national strategies, the coordination, the co- and the collaboration we can hope for coming out of this COP. I think it's one we we have to just be hopeful for. Uh, we can set high expectations and we can move the right way, but. Um, you know, this is a this is a, a pretty critical moment in our in our effort, especially when we think in the hydrogen space. You know, a decade of deployment. Um, this is this is the the kind of the earliest or the latest early point to really get moving uh, in a coordinated way, and I think uh, that's why COP matters. So, will it be a success? I think if we can if we can see the the, the actual pathway forward on what a uh, transition in a tangible sense rather than uh, aspirational announcements is, I think we will have had a successful COP and there's many, many ways it could could actually be successful in that way. So I'm hopeful, but um, but it's an important point and it's an important juncture. So there you go. Rant, rant, you rant go. number four of this episode over. Well, maybe maybe as a final wrap up, a question, Marcus, to finish us off. Um, you know, we've talked about a whole range of things, and I sort of, you know, if you don't like the term Oracle, you're certainly sitting at a pretty exciting table with uh, McKinsey, not only for all the things that they do, but also with the Hydrogen Council, with all the work you've done there. Do you think there's an area of the hydrogen discussion that people have maybe overlooked, or an area which you are particularly keen to talk about? Um, I'm just conscious that that's kind of a perspective that's quite unique because you do have a much broader mandate than most of our guests on the show. So I thought maybe as we're wrapping up, it'd be good to kind of ask you the question and see what you see, see if there is something obvious we've missed. Perhaps another way of thinking about it, Marcus, is to uh, steal from a, uh, from Noah Feldman, who used to be one of my favorite other podcasters, but uh, he always, he always ends his uh, interviews with the question, is there a question I should be asking that I'm not? <laughs> or, is there a question or problem we should be thinking about that we have not asked you about? 
um, that we should be thinking about, yeah? Uh, that's a great one. So my my not my first answer to this would have been the infrastructure one, but we tackled this one already, because um, that's that I think is the big one that, that we need to think about. Um, maybe the one thing the one thing that um, I'm excited about besides infrastructure, which we already talked about, um, is is obviously what uh, what new technologies are still at the kind of nascent stage and which which will come in, right? If you think about a wind turbine 15 years ago, and you think about a wind turbine today that is a completely different machine, right? Now we're talking about things that have the, the span of a A380 that are floating on water, um, are connected with huge cables, um, and, and, and a lot of incremental innovations have um, gotten us there and have you know, brought the cost down. And I think in a way we are at, with hydrogen where we were 15, 20 years ago with wind and solar. And so there's a, there's a wealth of development and money coming into this capital, coming into this uh, space. There will be a lot of innovation which we which we can't even see because we don't know what we can't see, right? So there's a lot. Of, I think I think it's going to be an exciting an exciting space with lots of innovation, lots of things coming into play. And I think that's coming a bit back to you know what should what should policymakers and investors do is we should I don't think we should make close any doors or gates, right? I think we should keep it open and keep innovation going. We should think about how to attract investors and, and startups because that's that's what's going to make this successful. I'm pretty excited. I think in, uh, in, in 10 years, we will look back and say, wow, we were there when it started. So um, it's a pretty exciting place to be. Awesome. Well, Marcus, I think we leave it at that. That's a, that's a phenomenal little wrap up right there. So, and I think uh, the, the exceptional thing we should note here I'm sure you're delighted to be this exception, uh, Marcus. <laughs> I think this is such a good conversation, so wide ranging that we're going to we're going to scratch our normal wrap up and just uh, feature the whole conversation with you. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Marcus Viltener, partner at McKinsey & Company in Brussels, for joining us here for the final episode of Season 2 at EAH. It was a fantastic conversation and a great way to close out our second year here at Hydrogen Media. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. So if you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you will tune in again in September for a wild set of guests to kick off Season 3 of Everything About Hydrogen. See you soon.